Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Tracy Morgan, your host here at New Books and Psychoanalysis, and today we'll be speaking to Dr. Stephen Poser about his most recent publication, The Misfits, which looks at the relationship between Hollywood icon Marilyn Monroe and psychoanalytic icon, to some, Ralph Greenson, and really draws an elaborate picture of a psychoanalytic relationship, one that we don't normally see. He's an analyst, uh, Dr. Poser's an analyst, looking at the thoughts and feelings of Greenson as counter-transference, and he's studying uh, Monroe and the feelings that she may have induced in Greenson so that he behaved in ways that we might not recognize as psychoanalytic. We're very pleased to have Dr. Poser with us today, and his background is very unique. He has a doctorate in philosophy. He is a licensed psychoanalyst in the state of New York and also a faculty member and training analyst at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. But he's also a working artist, and he has written art criticism, he paints, he exhibits in uh, one-person and group shows um, uh, around the country, in fact, internationally. So we're very pleased to have him with us to talk to us about his ideas about what went on in this analysis. So without further ado, we want to welcome Dr. Stephen Poser. Hello, Dr. Poser. Hello there. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, we're pleased to have you um, with us today uh, to talk to us um, about your most recent publication, um, The Misfit, and uh, which discusses uh, um, in a fascinating way the relationship between uh, Marilyn Monroe and her psychoanalyst, uh, Ralph Greenson. So um, I just want to welcome you again. Um, and I have a lot of questions, um, and uh, we can talk about um, anything for 50 minutes in the 50-minute hour. Um, just to set up the interview, um, two things. One is uh, I'd like to talk to you um, about the publication specifically, but also because I think it's an interesting piece of psychoanalytic writing and also that uh, you um, are really in charge of the writing and uh, research of many uh, analytic candidates at the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, and I know think a lot about writing. Um, I want to spend some time um, getting your thoughts about new forms of psychoanalytic writing and uh, uh, of which I think... um, the, the misfit is is one. So um, well, thank you. I mean, it was it was intended in part to be a contribution to the literature of the psychoanalytic case study, which is one of the areas which I have focused on in my teaching, and I do supervise a lot of the students who are writing their uh, final paper for the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, which is a single case study. And uh, so I've had a chance to think about it and um, read a, a whole you know, range of material through not just from the students, but in the literature of the field mm-hmm. as well. So I have feelings about psychoanalytic writing and the case study in particular. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is quite a, a case study because it's a case study of two. Um, not just a, many have written about Marilyn um, and Marilyn Monroe. When you read this, you realize that you're really writing. You're bringing the analyst. Nobody, people don't tend to bring the analyst and the patient to life together. That's correct. Well, most most of the most case studies are written by analysts about their own patients or about a patient that they have access to clinical material right. uh, about. You know, Freud wrote about his wolf man and his rat man. He never met the um, the uh, the wolf man, but he he wrote he wrote the, he wrote the piece about him. Right. And and uh I mean Schraber, I'm sorry. He he, he treated the Wolfman but he, he never met Schraber, but he right. wrote the piece based on Schraber's own case study. And frankly, I think that not just in Freud's case, but in the case of very many of the most creative, significant contributors to psychoanalytic thought, that it is the deep study of a single patient that kind of opens up a frame of concepts or of uh, of ideas for for different kinds of dynamics and mechanisms uh, throughout the whole history of psychoanalysis. You find that it's the clinical material that generates the new developments in conceptualization. So I think that's an important thing to know about about the field. I mean, we don't work from the top down. We seem to work from the bottom up. <laughs> that's that's true. Um, I was I was thinking that because so many um, so many uh, people have written about Marilyn Monroe, and um, I wanted to ask you what uh, what does bringing um, psychoanalytic attention um, as you do to her story. Um, Reveal where does where do you think it it, it takes us? What does it offer um, in terms of our our understanding of of not just her obviously, but also also of Greenson? What does what does the analyst's attention um, uh, when elucidated through writing? Um, wh- what can it do? Well, you know, Marilyn is often uh, brought forth as a classic example of borderline personality disorder. In fact, you know, if you look at some of the textbooks, you know, she's often mentioned um, in, in there. And I, I felt, you know, and I still do feel that um, this is, th- these, these are some of the most difficult patients we will ever treat. And they, they cannot be, um, they cannot be uh, either recognized or treated or understood on the model of the classic neurotic that Freud describes, nor the 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 the, 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 the schizophrenic patient that you know we spend a lot of time describing in modern psychoanalysis, that this kind of patient demands a, another way of, of 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 behaving, another way of understanding, and another way of trying to endure and structure the treatment in order to be able to get any kind of um, therapeutic result. So I think um, one thing you can learn about from Marilyn is uh, that this, this kind of case um, demands uh, not just, you know, a, a lot of, you know, 
um, let's say, uh, subtle and uh, a, a clinical clinical skill, but a um, a kind of um, way of conceptualizing that I don't think Greenson had available to him at the time he treated her, and that's one of the reasons the treatment, you know, kind of fell apart or imploded or whatever, however you want to consider it. It's kind of like a Greek tragedy what happened here. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's a terrible story, really. But um, what I tried to do in the, in the book was to give some of the theoretical background that at least Greenson consciously invoked in order to justify his way of, of treating her. And um, it was primarily based on two things. One was Freud's early uh, thought that you can't treat a psychotic patient with analytic interpretive techniques because it won't work. They can't establish an object transference. That's the Freudian position that um, that Greenson was taught, and that's the position which he took. Uh, the second part of it is that he got involved with Milton Wexler, who had a great deal of experience with psychotic and schizophrenic patients at Menninger Clinic. And from Wexler, he derived the idea of the the real relationship as the basic uh, therapeutic alliance that must be engaged with a psychotic or a non-neurotic or schizophrenic patient. Uh, as quickly as possible, because there was no other way to kind of make contact with them um, uh, and keep them in 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 some kind of therapeutic relationship to the analyst. So you had, in other words, there was no. Really, it, it it comes down to the idea of how do you work with this kind of transference and what kind of transference is it? And I don't think they had the um, the building blocks for that. Um, that's one thing you can learn. The other thing you can learn from it is that the counter-transference induction with this kind of patient is overwhelming. And the demand to gratify very primitive kinds of uh, emotional needs can um, very easily completely un undo the, the boundaries of the analytic dyad. <laughs> and Greenson, no matter how smart and brilliant and uh, experienced he was, could not defend himself against that. He he just you know he just fell into the into the inductions um, because he wanted to cure her. He wanted to treat her. He wanted to help her. He wanted to save her. Right. And he and he ended up you know kind of. Um, he never got over losing her, really. I mean, it, it, it wasn't. It was kind of like um, losing a child for mm. him. I think more than losing a lover or or something. It, it, it broke was, his it, heart it, in that way. Yeah. It, it broke his. It broke his heart. It broke his heart. Yeah. And um, that's part of the emotional reality of this story, and part of the tragedy of this story. Yeah. Whether anybody could have done better, treated her better. I don't know. He was our only male analyst, if you notice. You know, there were four of them. Mm -hmm. He was the first and only man, which, mm -hmm. um, and um, in the story of her life, of course, she had very little in the way of either mother. Her mother uh, went 
went uh, became psychotic and was hospitalized you know when she was seven and she rarely saw her ever in her life mm-hmm. uh, she never knew who her father was mm-hmm. and uh, never met him for sure right and uh, so what you can learn I mean there's all there's a lot of things you can learn from this you know one of which is, which may be that um, some some patients can't can't be helped no matter what you do um, I, I don't know there's no way of knowing how if she had been exposed to another form of treatment um, it might have come out but um, well do you think had, that um, I mean if, if you <laughs> I, as, as I as I read the book I thought all right well what if uh, you know, what if um, Stephen Poser were to um, supervise, um, you know, to supervise Greenson on, on this case um, based on, because I think you're very sensitive uh, in the book to the the psychoanalytic sort of theory and culture and thinking in which he was uh you know, steeped, like we're all steeped. He couldn't, he couldn't see the forest for the trees. I mean, I think today yeah. we, we might think very differently about, um, uh, you know, adopting a person like this would, uh, I, we might say that would totally drive them to suicide. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, yeah. that, that, that kind of treatment, um, would, would guarantee, um, their, their destruction. It would be, it would be too much and too overwhelming. Um, if, if uh, you had the chance to um, supervise Greenson, um, do you have, you have thoughts about uh, different ways of well, managing? Well, I think something, something along the lines that you just said would be appropriate. I mean, what you think is the best thing that you could possibly do for her is, in fact, the worst thing you could possibly do for her, because um, Giving uh, giving the pretense of offering that much unconditional love and protection and support, you know, both on a kind of uh, infantile and on a kind of uh, uh, mature, more um, Oedipal level, um, can never can never satisfy the demand that she is going to be placing on you, and to uh, and on top of the fact that you're you're gonna you're bound to fail. Uh, by disappointing her, right. you're you're bound also to incur that recoil, that preemptive strike against the treatment and against the analyst, which this kind of person, this kind of patient, will inevitably level at you the minute she feels the longings um, arise. <laughs> so um, it's it's as though. In, in this kind of a, a, a configuration, this kind of borderline configuration, um, the, the, the very arousal of longing um, will, will, will um, transform, itself, transform itself into a kind of um, hostile, retaliatory hatred. There's a, and, there's a part in the book where, where um, you describe her... Um Bringing a, a sculpture to yeah. him, which I think really yeah. elucidates um, this point. It's a sculpture of a, a man and woman, uh, sort of erotically intertwined, and she brings it to him. And this is this is before she is this this is close to the time you know that she she really decompensates um, or is decompensating. Yeah, very close. Yeah, it's very close. Yeah, if, if she's yeah, saying, right. if you think then, by holding me, uh, I'm going to get better, well, <laughs> it 
look at this, you know, or something. It was very, very powerful, symbolic message. Uh, That's right. And she, and she, she, she becomes um, very uh, angry at him and, you know, keeps repeating, well, what does it mean, doctor? What does it mean? Tell me what it means. Mm-hmm. You know, almost in a kind of defiant, uh, confrontational way mm-hmm. to which he could make no response. Right. You know, like, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And we have a... We, and, uh, we, go ahead. Rostin, Rostin, Rostin who was uh, reporting in this story, said that when he witnessed this, he felt that right there and then she was falling apart. Yeah. You, you can feel it. It was like a, a moment of you know, showing showing him this symbolic, you know, this this man and this woman intertwined, and saying, you know, you can't you can't just intertwine me. You can't love me into being better. If uh, you know, if she's not allowed to to hate him, he was, I mean, he was deaf. To, he couldn't understand that. No, the love that kills. <laughs> no, he, he thought the ideal analyst was a uh, motherly father figure. For yeah. Her. Yeah. And that's exactly what he tried to present. And he did uh, what Gabbard calls the disidentification with the aggressor in a in a kind of total way. He he thought he was providing her a um, a compensation for all the loss and uh, abuse and um, and emotional kind of failures that she'd experienced in her whole life. And he was going to sort of repair that by giving her those experiences himself. Right. That is a big mistake. <laughs> it is. I mean, although, you know, I think it, one of the most difficult um, aspects of being an analyst is, is tolerating being hated. And, um, right. You know, so, uh, I mean, we know, we know it now. I think it's much more commonly understood that the hate is important. But, um and have supervision that you know we don't feel that we're fa- we're failed because we're openly hated. Um, certainly in the modern school, I mean that's you know you you you, you know the patient is free to feel everything if they can feel uh, you know that if they they can hate you and love you, uh, you have the sense that um, you know you're you're moving toward quote unquote cure maybe even you know but, uh, but yeah but then you've got to deal with the the pragmatic aspect of how to manage this kind of um, uh, demand in the transference mm-hmm. without the patient exploding in rage and just leaving, mm-hmm. because most of these uh, most borderline patients leave in, in in a rage, right? You know, because they're not going to get what they want, and they and can't handle really it when they get them, it. If you really, if you really cared, if you really cared about whether they lived or died, you know, and you weren't just a you know bullshit artist, right. then you would you do something. You know, it's not enough to, you know, to make them feel that you understand. Right. It's not enough. Right. That's not enough. It's, it, it goes much deeper than that. they got to feel wanted and loved. And that, that, was, that was, I think that was the part, part of the paper that I was actually most proud of when I described that. Mm-hmm. The transference, because it's this, it's the primitive and, and profound depth of, I want you to, I need you to want me, mm-hmm. uh, which is both addressed to the, to, the, to the infantile mother, to the pre-Oedipal mother that she never really had, and to the Oedipal father that she never really had, Right. Um, uh, uh, both of whom abandoned and rejected her. Yeah, it's hard. So Greenson saw that and he understood it perfectly well. 
you know, but his idea was that uh, in order to, to, to cure her, he would need himself to, put, to, to create an object which would repair that, which would provide a compensation and a reparation for those early losses and rejections in himself. Now, how could he... And, and, and you can't fault that idea. I mean, really, I mean... Uh, and every one of her women analysts certainly uh, tried to mother her. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, including uh, Mary and Chris. I mean, one of the really interesting things about this story is how deep it goes into the history of psychoanalysis. I mean, Marilyn Monroe has a direct relationship to, to Sigmund Freud through this, <laughs> cha- to, through this chain of connection. She's one know? degree of separation. I mean, from Anna. One to... degree of separation. I mean, you know... Greenson was a colleague of Anna Freud's. Greenson had Max Schur for his analyst for mm-hmm. a while. He was analyzed by Otto Fenichel, who was analyzed by Freud. By Freud, right. Uh, Anna Freud actually met with Marilyn for uh, at least a few sessions in London. So she was actually in the company of Sigmund Freud's daughter. And then Marion Chris was Sigmund Freud's like uh, adopted daughter because Marion was the the child of the family physician of the Freud of the Freuds. Was she married to Ernst Chris to the psychoanalyst? She, she, was, ma- she was married to Ernst Chris. Oh, you're kidding. Okay, I didn't know that. I, I sort of figured as much, but mm-hmm. and Marion Chris was involved in the um, setting up of the Child Study Center at Yale when she immigrated to New York. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah, so she was a she was an early pioneer child analyst and worked with Anna Freud first in the Hampstead Clinic. Right. Right. And then came to New York, and then Nana stayed in London. But um, that that brings Marilyn very close into the kind of bosom of the Freud family. I mean, she was almost, you know, as though she were analyzed by Freud himself. It's very, it's very interesting because it does open a window onto um, psychoanalytic history and uh, mm-hmm. and theory um, through. I think I think what's unique and what I like about what you've written, and I hope that you'll. Um, uh, oh, full disclosure, doc, Dr. Poser has been an instructor of mine um, at CMBS, and so um, you know I, I know I know him um, as an instructor and and, uh, and a um, an advisor, and um, and you've mentioned uh, possibly uh, writing more about other analytic. Uh, uh, couples, um, you know, analyst and patient couples, um, and I think that's a, a fascinating idea because it does open a window onto how, how far how far could Greenson go? What were the, the constraints of the time? What were his uh, what theoretical frameworks were were available? And and what could a treatment uh, look like uh, at at that time? Um, are you do you have other sort of ideas? Uh, well, it's not so easy to find analytic couples. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a very uh, long paper that I came across um, describing. Samuel Beckett's analysis with Wolford Beyond. Now that that was perfect a couple. Influ- How perfect! That was a, yes, that was a mutually influential relationship Whoa. that that, that uh, occurred very early in Beyond's career. I mean, he was only a few years out of school, and he took on Samuel Beckett. <laughs> and uh, there's a very interesting paper about that in in, in the psycho. I think in the International Journal. Um, <laughs> Waiting for Godot. Wow. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
yeah, but um, as far as other uh, analytic couples, this is not so easy to come across. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not so easy to come across. If you think of any uh, more examples, well, uh, who somebody someone was um, speaking to, to me about about but, Judy uh, Garland, Marilyn Greenson. Judy Garland. Well, yeah. Here's here's something interesting. Is uh, a, a good friend of mine, um, Heidi Doro, was she was a, a serious reader, and she was knew that I was interviewing you, and she was very excited because she'd read the book. And then she said, "Oh, you know, I've just read this piece. On, uh, I think a biography of Judy Garland, and I guess Judy Garland was at uh, Austin Riggs." Really? Um, yeah, and you know that was a hotbed of you know. That's not surprising to me. Yeah, well, right, absolutely. Um, and I was thinking, wow, that would be really an interesting. Um, I mean, somebody's. Well, written... I've had I've, thought, I've had some thoughts because the the publisher of this book, you know, wanted to know what I thought I might be able to do next, and I, I've had some. You know, I've been working on a couple of ideas, but one of which I am not going to do is Marlon Brando, who I first thought would make an excellent subject for this, because I mean, in a way, he's a he was a great theatrical and uh, cinema star. I mean, he was a terrific, he was a great artist of the time. Yeah. And he was on many, many analytic couches. I mean, mm-hmm. He he came out of the same school of, of performing um, training that Marilyn did, although he studied with uh, Stella Adler instead of Lee Strasberg, but they were both derivative of Stanislavski and the method, right. which is basically a kind of emotional recall of one's own experience being used as a, a kind of fuel and platform for uh, creating the role. Mm-hmm. So you go into yourself to find the character. Not for the faint of heart or the narcissistically vulnerable, that approach, I imagine. No, no. but uh, the more I got into and Brando did have a, a psychotic daughter who committed suicide and a, and a son who committed murder. Yep. Um, by killing the boyfriend of the of his sister, mm-hmm. and it all got very messy. And uh, sounds and Greek, so, yeah. It was it was a mess, but um, no, I, I don't I don't think I'm going to do Brando. Yeah, I do, have, I do have some thoughts about you know uh, about psychoanalytic writing in general and. Um, well, that's. I mean, I I really I really do want to talk to you about it. I was thinking that. What you've written goes beyond, um, I think, the, a field that is unfortunately in um, ill repute, uh, known as psychohistory. Um, yeah. But it, go, it, it does something different than psychohistory, because it's not uh, analyzing the culture through a psychoanalytic lens. Um, and um, it does something different in that it, it attempts to get closer to the analyst's counter-transference and counter-transference resistance. And so... It's interesting because it reveals, I mean, I, I think that there's a hunger for the analyst to be revealed in the culture now. You know, we have in treatment, people seem to love it, um, you know, love to watch it, um, uh, you know, can be very uncomfortable as an analyst. Many analysts say, oh, I'm very uncomfortable watching that. But, um, but there's a hunger to, like, look further into the analyst, which you do, you know, in, in, in your I, I, writing. I, I, I appreciate that's a compliment. Yeah. I did. I, I did identify very deeply with, really, with both of them in it. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, thank God, nothing like what happened to him ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I cared that much about a patient who then went off and killed herself, I don't think it would be very easy to get over it. No. 
On the other hand, I think we've all had patients who arouse feelings um, of pure, you know, wishing to make their lives better, mm-hmm. to help to give something truly and authentically of ourselves to them, which has nothing much to do with interventions that are that are technically designed to produce any kind of result, but are, are, are more like, you know, gifts from the heart of some kind right. or, or feelings. And I think we've all had patients who really we, we, we end up caring very much about, if not loving. Yep. And um, I also think that those kinds of feelings can be very uh, important therapeutically. I mean, the tricky part is not to act them out in such a way as to destroy the therapeutic alliance or the relationship in favor of something altogether in the in the real world, like bringing a woman into your home and 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 um, letting her keep champagne in your fridge. <laughs> yeah, or wash the dishes, or sleep over, and uh, you know. Uh, you know, but, but 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 it happens. You know, people end up lending money, giving you giving various kinds of jobs and professional help. You know, even uh, entering into romantic relationships. Now, I don't think that happened between. Right. Um, I think Greenson was much more vulnerable to the uh, to the the homeless waif than he was to the blonde bombshell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, Again, you know, any every analytic couple is a unique configuration of of dynamics and chemistries, and even of the moment in time which in which their lives cross. Yeah, and uh, that combined with the school of thought, you know, uh, of which the analyst is somehow a product, will you know determine an awful lot of what happens or what doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, think that there's a kind of uniqueness. There's a there's a kind of uniqueness which I I always emphasize, you know, when I'm teaching this stuff, is that every analytic pair is a unique occurrence. Right. Even though you know they're they're supposedly you know embarking on the same kind of therapeutic journey, there's there's a uniqueness which can never really be replicated. So every case study is is like um, a unique biography of of of, of two. So, so let me ask you a question. Um, what? How would you define? Um, well, there's two questions. One is, uh, I want to ask, what's psychoanalytic writing? And I want to ask you, what is psychoanalytic research? Big questions. That's good. <laughs> Go well, ahead. Well, I can answer the you know, the first, the second question. I think I basically know the answer to. At least my way of thinking about psychoanalytic research. Now, I, you, know, you have to re- remember that I don't teach empirical or quantitative, quantitative research methods, and I have no real background in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a, more of a background in the arts and humanities, and um, and so when I teach the research class, I I start out by saying, well, this is about how do you study your patient? How do you make sense of all the um, all the, uh, the the different kinds of of data that are kind of 
flying through the room, you know, both in the form of verbal communications and nonverbal communications, you know, daydreams, thoughts, wishes, fantasies, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, bits and pieces of of of, of um, psychic uh, particles, let's say, uh, that then somehow have to conform into some makes make sense out of this. What's going on here? What's happening? How do you understand this? So the way I try to get the students to begin to to write is to first describe the what. What happens? Who says what? What happens next? You know, what are the details? How do they move? How do they? How do they? You know, digress. Um, what's the sequence of, of imagery and of feelings and of um, uh, uh, and so forth that that occurs in the course of just a single session, and then after a while, you want to try and make sense out of it. You have to look for patterns. You have to look for you know shapes, and um, then you can begin to address the question of, like, what's going on here? So first there's the what, and then there's the so what. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it, 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 it's like, uh, well, um, narrative and then commentary. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that's... that's um, and then when you get into the structured single-case study... Um, you usually have to have a methodology and a review of literature, but the but, but, but the fundamental part of it is to be able to describe. And in the Maryland piece, I put an awful lot of very vivid anecdotal description, yeah. almost visual. And a part of the background of this book was that after I did a workshop on borderline personality, again, my first kind of case presentation of Maryland, I got introduced to a filmmaker, a French filmmaker, who was interested in making a movie about what happened between Marilyn and Greenson. And so for more than a year, I met with her in the coffee shop, and we just, I mean, I told her everything I could i could tell her about Borderline, based on my own experience. Plus, we were reading some uh, of the biographical material together. And um, that... You know, so when I when I got around to making the the effort to expand all this into something like a long monograph, I was dealing. I, I was writing it for her. I was writing it almost as a, a kind of a blueprint for a screenplay or something, and that's why it's so full of um, anecdotal visual descriptions. What she says, how she talks, what she, how she acts what people say, and that gives the richness of detail. And then, um, when I turned to the interpretive side, um, I had a lot of um, data upon which to build my, my, um, my comprehension. And I used those bits and pieces of psychoanalytic theory that I felt did, in fact, explain and make sense of this. Mm-hmm. to the best that I could. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't, you know, applying a psychoanalytic template to the material. I was evoking um, psychoanalytic 
like, uh, let's say, um, ways of comprehending to mm-hmm. the material in, in, in a more, uh, I think, um, holistic and natural way. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense to you? Yeah, sure. sure. So that's my idea. So psychoanalytic research and writing... Um, I just, I just wanted to say one thing. It's interesting um, the way you describe research because, of course, the thought is um, well, research, you're going to prove something for all of us that we need to see, right? It sort of has a, it sort of, it has a, um, at least to my mind, um, doing research is creating public knowledge. But when psychoanalysts do research, we're actually not, uh, it's not exactly public knowledge that we're creating because we're just studying, as you say. I mean, if it is a single case study in that form of research, it is one person at a time. I mean, I'm interviewing next week um, Muriel Dimon, and she's had a reading and writing group that uh, they have a book called. Um, uh, oh God, I can't believe I'm, um, my mind is blanking out. Um, with culture in mind, psychoanalytic stories, in which many analysts write these sort of uh, interesting um, stories, um, and and she, but they're looking at sort of what this means about the culture, right? And so that's a that's almost that's a different form of or a different approach, and they're sort of looking outward to the larger world as it intersects with the clinic, um, and with the case study, it's a very intimate, as you say, a very intimate form of research, and only the analyst knows. You know, only the analyst. I think so too, because there's a there's a there's a large literature uh, in psychoanalytic psychoanalytic research which does uh, try to um, live up to the um, objectivity and empirical um, defensive defend, defendable uh, hypothesis and um, and inference process that you describe. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, I mean, someone like Andre Green would probably say that there's that there really can't be any such thing as psychoanalytic research because it's a kind of uh, it's an intersubjective situation to begin with, and there's no outside. Um, you can't repeat the experiment, you know, what mm-hmm. I mean? um, and see how it would come out with a different uh, a different um, technique, for example, or a different. Uh, analyst. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you can you can do other kinds of outcome studies, um, but they won't be they won't be. Um, uh, let's say, how, do, how should I put this? Um, it's very problematic. What psychoanalytic? What 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 is or is not psychoanalytic research? You know. Um, what I've been describing is a, is a kind of psychoanalytic writing, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of a kind of way of using psychoanalysis as a as a lens through which to try to um, comprehend a, uh, a clinical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And um, there are other con- there are other ways of, of of conceiving research in psychoanalysis, which have nothing to do with the understanding of the single case. Right. And your, your, that way. your point that you yeah. made, I think, when we began uh, speaking today was that out of the single case um, can emerge new theoretical uh, understandings, new clinical understandings, understandings that could impact 
um, you know, theory of technique, technique, uh, you know, thoughts about uh, new thoughts about organization of the psyche, uh, the intersubjective. I, and I, I think that that, that, that that's that's very powerful. I mean, that out of Anna that. O, Anna O is the first psychoanalytic patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anna O yep. gave, gave rise to the conception of the cathartic method and to the idea of um, making the unconscious conscious as a, uh, as a, as a way of relieving uh, the expression of symptoms. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is the, the mother of psychoanalysis if, if Freud is the father. <laughs> I just I heard Lou Aaron give a talk at the APA in which he he said that uh, he thought Ferenczi was the mother of psychoanalysis and Freud was the father. But um, <laughs> which I think is I think is also true. <laughs> I think, I think, I think they, that's also true. Yeah, I think that's also true. But if you look if you look carefully um, at you know the major figures in the field, you know, and you can start with Freud and go to Ferenczi and go to Klein and go to Jung and go to and go to Beyond and go to Winnicott. And Ogden, are, right? I mean, Ogden is... Og- there, are, there are key cases right. that defined their, 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 their thought at certain crucial moments in the development of their, their, their conceptual apparatus, mm-hmm. which are decisive, mm-hmm. absolutely decisive. Yeah. Melanie Klein, I know for sure, because there was one child case that uh, really gave her her concept of the right uh, the good and bad breast and the so forth the um, the pre uh, the, well, the schizoid uh, mechanism the paranoid schizoid mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that you know it's a flip side of my my thought also that every major school of analysis is also a self portrait of the analyst you know not just of the patient but of the analyst oh sure. <laughs> yeah, so you get the you know you get the combination of um, uh, Anna O and Freud, and you you get you get a certain picture, and mm-hmm. then the Oedipal the Oedipal conflict as well is you know partly a, a bit of Freud's own self analysis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Mm, so. Um, What's the question? <laughs> I don't know. I just was I just was interested in thinking about the you know how how analysts uh, create schools of thought. I was I was out of, you know out of out of these case studies, certain schools of thought are created, and I I was thinking about um, the concept of thirdness, which now seems to be getting more ecumenical, right? But I mean, does it yeah. begin with Ogden or is it with Benjamin? But it comes. Um, in, in Ogden, you you know, there, there's you read you read a case, you're reading a case, and he begins to elucidate, you know, and you begin to get the sense of, well, I kind of buy this thirdness idea, you know, the third in the room, um, and wow. and what is the third? And he kind of br- and he brings it. He brings it to to life, and then, as clinicians, you know, we sit with our patients and go, "Oh, is this is this what he means? You know what I mean? Is this what he's what he's talking about?" It's it's exciting, um, I think, to learn through people's uh, case studies and theoretical advances made um, from studying the case closely. Sure. I uh, I mean, I I I often teach a, a piece by Christopher Bolas called "What Is Theory." Mm-hmm. Says that a theory is a mode of perception. 
Right. And that every 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 school of psychoanalysis that you can somehow internalize into your uh, into your perceptual repertoire adds to your the depth of your uh, of your ability to comprehend a patient and to comprehend the analytic the dynamics that are going on between you and that patient. Mm-hmm. And uh, he encourages people to have as wide a range as possible. But the thing is, it takes decades to even get one in. Right. You know, I mean, you really have to live inside these these modes of uh, of conceptualization to really be able to see through them. That's and right. To, to, and, to, and, to, and to understand through them. Mm-hmm. And then you, you then you have to let go of all the sort of theoretical apparatus and just be there with the patient. Right. And uh, I think Greenson tried to do that, except that he was operating, I think, with a flawed conception of what he was dealing with and also with a very blindsided understanding of his own conduct. He just didn't want to know for some ungodly reason what he was doing and that's the part I don't know what in him what in him let this happen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what was he repeating you know Mm -hmm. what was what was yeah and that's the part I don't know you see that's part of his analysis I don't know and his papers are sealed for quite a while is that correct till 2039 (laughs) And that ain't, you know, whistling Dixie. That, there must be a reason for that. Everybody's going to be dead by then. <laughs> you know? That's that's the hope, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't just to protect patient confidentiality, uh-huh. because he's got he's got a lot of papers sure. at UCLA, which which is where they all are. But every one of the Maryland files is just sealed. Wow. Wow. So all the stuff that I got, you know, was from other sources, like uh, the correspondence with Anna Freud that mm-hmm. is, is not is not in those files, mm-hmm. and um, different kinds of uh, interviews and recounts uh, from some of the some of the uh, biographical material that I read. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of mystery there. Uh, yeah, was it? Yeah, there's a lot of mystery there. Um, I think it's very difficult. I was, I was, one, I was thinking to myself, well, gee, if I wanted to write about an analytic, psychoanalytic duo, uh, a couple, um, well, it's really damned impossible, pretty much, to like, get to get the to get the analyst notes. I mean, they're you know confidential. The patient's confidentiality has to be protected, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, you know, but it is it is really. Um, it, it's really com- it's compelling literature. It's sort of um, like you. Sh- I had the, the sense I was reading something. Um, it wasn't prurient in, in what you wrote, but in, in a sense, it was like, wow, you're sort of taking us to the other side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think I did, you know, and I hope I don't. Uh, I don't. It doesn't, people don't feel like voyeurs when they read that thing because. Um, uh, I don't. Although, I think that that's just me reading it as an analyst, going like. Wow, you know. Yeah. Here's here's here it here it all is, you know, these yeah. these two people. Um Yeah. Yeah. You know. And they're uh yeah. you know, and, and their their time together. Um you know, I mean it's uh 
it was uncomfortable in moments, just like watching. I mean, I, you know, people say watching in treatment is uncomfortable. It's like, that's right. It's uncomfortable of you, you know, as he, as he, as, you know, as he almost sleeps with the patient, right? And, you know, the, the, you know, the main character and he, you know, I think punches a patient and push. You know, oh, well, uh, Wexler got thrown out of the uh, Los Angeles Psychoanalytic uh, Association for attacking a patient. And, and and Greenston, who was in the next office, had to go and tear them apart. Well, I mean, Wex, Wexler was a wild card. Sounds he was it. a wild card. He was a wild it. card. I mean, and um, Greenston could have chosen a different supervisor. I mean, right? I mean, that that's there's a lot of information in like who we go to for supervision, right? And that's who right. he could have chosen a different supervisor. Yeah, every, we all know, like you know, if if you know who someone's being supervised by, you have, it's a lot of information about the person in their choice of a supervisor, you know, well, and. Yeah. Um, it's it's always that way. Uh, if you know who some who someone chose as their analyst, and so I was thinking, well, um, you know, Greenson, um, you know, he he did he had other he had other people to choose from, but he chose uh, someone a little, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe a little a little a little wild, a little um, you know, willing to throw caution to the wind, right? And um, in a way, because I mean, there were other people. I mean, obviously, in the moderns always say, "Well, you know, Spotnitz in the '40s, he was you know working with schizophrenics, as was Harry Stack Sullivan, you know." And their their approach was quite different, um, you know, in working with people with people who were very regressed. And I know your point is she's not schizophrenic, although she had a lot of psychotic features, uh, but that she's more borderline. That was my main point. Yes, mm-hmm. but uh, those those psychotic features threw him for. Uh, he didn't. I don't think he had. I don't think either of them had the. Um, the sophistication we have now with regard to those uh, those differentiations. I mean, there's more to. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not just it's not just you know neurotic versus schizophrenic. Right. They right. you know he he was dealing with a with a with a severe character disorder with a lot of psychotic defense organization, <laughs> and she could de- she could get very primitive. She was capable of delusional transferences, but she was not hallucinating. She wasn't hearing voices. She wasn't. You know, she wasn't she wasn't treatable as a schizophrenic mm-hmm. or as a neurotic, mm-hmm. and um, and he decided he was going to treat her basically by not treating her, right? By adopting her, right? That was a big, that was a big mistake. <laughs> I just I I, I I keep thinking what would. Um, I mean, clearly, Kernberg had not uh, made a big impact on the scene in thinking about borderlines. Uh, whether you agree with his approach or not, it really is the antithesis, as uh, you think of it, to what Greenson did, what Wexler, you know, suggested as a supervisor. Um, yeah, you know, Kernberg's yeah, approach yeah. is so highly structured um, and so, right. you know, so bounded um, and boundaried. I mean, that it's a. <laughs> you understand? Maybe it's a reaction to. Yeah. And they don't hesitate to hospitalize people very easily, you know, in that school of thought as well. Right. And Greenson wouldn't do that with her. Right. He wouldn't hospitalize her. Right. And she was... He wouldn't, you know, whereas I think a Kernberg would have hospitalized her. Well, and when when she was hospitalized, she she really uh, wanted to she freaked out. burn the house down. You know, burn, she burned she the did. relationship to the ground, classically, right? She, yeah, yeah. She excoriated. Um, which analyst was that? That was Chris, who had her hospitalized. I forget, but um, yeah. yeah, she she scor- It was scorched earth after then. So then you yeah. lose the patient. <laughs> you 
You know, you, you save yeah. them, but you lose them uh, potentially. Uh, so that's a, you know that remains a problem. No matter how who you are, you know, you could you're more likely to lose a lose a woman, lose a patient like this than you are to help them. Yep. No matter, no matter what, and you know, my frank opinion is that that's still true of schizophrenia as well. Yeah. But um, you know, there are uh, there are people who are talented with this, you know, and I don't know where they are or who they come from, but some people can get it mm-hmm. with somebody like this, and 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 Greenson wasn't wasn't one of them. I don't think he was tough enough for her, basically. Right. Not at all. <laughs> but he was he was also he was also he had a lot of vanity and arrogance about him and that's part of the reason he took Wexler for a supervisor because Wex, Wexler complimented that. I mean they both, you know, thought that they knew they knew better than everybody else. They're a folie à toi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The supervisor, the analyst and the patient for can can oh, form no. that. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, so we're um, we're at the almost well we're at fifty minutes. Is there anything else that you wanted to um to say or talk about before we um, draw the interview to a close. It's uh, been a pleasure having you here. So, Well, it's been a pleasure talking. Um, gee, I don't know. Well, what would you like to know? <laughs> or what, what's, your, what's your burning question that you still haven't uh, I'm looking. You know? I'm looking. I mean, I like that you chase. Listen, I just want, it, it's not really a question. It's like a leading question. But I notice, of course, The Misfits is plural. The Misfits was the movie. But with right, but but isn't that isn't that plural? And I think is the book is the misfit. Is it the misfit or the misfits? I have in my the mind misfit. the yeah. book is the misfits, and it's available only as an ebook on Amazon. Right. Um, and so don't look for it in the bookstore. It's only available on Amazon, but it's very cheap. So that's a nice compensation. You can download it to your. You could download it even <laughs> as you're to listening. Your, <laughs> your computer, to your iPad, your smartphone or your Kindle. <laughs> free. <laughs> now, um, I should have, uh, I will, here's, here's the thing that I was thinking though, it's like, it's um, the miss, it's such a, such a great title that you chose because I was, didn't choose it. No, it was, chosen, I, it, was <laughs> it was chosen by the, uh, um, the people that published it. Oh, really? They, I, they, also, they also got a great cover picture, which oh, is, yeah. uh, still from the, um, the Misfits, the movie, but they, mm-hmm. they gave it the title. I had a much more kind of prosaic academic title. What was the title? Final Analysis. Uh, isn't there a movie? <laughs> Final Analysis. The story with Mickey Rooney or something? No. <laughs> they didn't like that very well, so they came up with a better title. But I it think is... it's a good title because it's not just her. It's the two of them. That's right. Together. I, I love that. I, I actually really yeah. got a kick out of, out of the title. I was like, well, that's, yeah. that's kind of a great, um, a great description. of." Uh, yeah, so that was not my uh, doing, but I loved it. When I heard it, I thought, this is great. Yeah, it's people, people know great. the movie and associate her with it, and now to bring that to a, an analytic uh, pair um, is, is yeah. a, was terrific. Yeah, so there's the analytic pair. So if you think of any... Uh, Good analytic pairs. Uh, I think you should go for Judy Garland. I I'm, I really would like to see. I well, listen. Help me find out who treated her, and then we can go from there. Then we can go. <laughs> well, I'll work on that. I I think because I think it would be. Um, she's she's a fast another fascinating and tragic uh, figure, and she has family that um, are alive actually. So it'd be pretty tricky. But um, <laughs> okay. yeah. 
All right. Well, listen, um, thank you for being with us. Um, keep us posted uh, for, regarding your next publication, and um, we'd be happy to have you um, come join us again. And uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Stephen Poser um, for speaking with us uh, today about his um, book, The Misfits, which is, um, as he said, on um, you can download it from Amazon. And um, thanks for spending time with us. Okay. All right. All right. Bye-bye.